Let us pray. Great God, thank you for the priceless gift of your word and the privilege of being able to study it together this morning. Please remove the distractions from our minds and open our hearts so that we may understand and do your will through the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will be like those who go down to the pit. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. The word of the Lord. When I heard those words, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land, I found myself wondering, is there going to be water in the pulpit? And there isn't. If someone could grab me a cup of water, I'd be ever so grateful. Thank you, Mike. Friends of Jesus Christ, and my friends, but we're here gathered as friends of Jesus. I just want to say a An ever-so-brief thank you to this congregation for the gift of a sabbatical. I feel like not a completely different person, but a much better person coming back. And um, not sure how this is going to go because I haven't preached in seven months. Thank you. Better take a drink right now. But let's see if I remember something. I'm jumping into a series, a summer series called Praying the Psalms. Praying the Psalms has actually been a large part of my sabbatical. Not unknown to me before my sabbatical, but I've put myself on a rhythm of going through the Psalter, all 150 Psalms, once every four weeks. It's not as hard as it sounds. It's about five a day. Um, But you can pray that much in a day. You really can't. But there's a few, there are a few psalms that I pray a lot more often, and that Psalm 143, even going back to before my sabbatical, was a psalm I pray almost every day. And I guess that's why I wanted to start with this one, because it's familiar to me, but it's also very, uh, it's, it's integral to my prayer life. How do you pray a psalm. Oh, by the way, Sylvia has the, my old habits, Sylvia has the manuscripts if anyone wants them. 
How do you pray a psalm? I think praying a psalm is a lot like singing a hymn. If, if you're a good music reader, you can sing a hymn right off the page, even a hymn that you've never sung before, and it works. But even if you can do that, and I don't know how many people actually can sing a hymn cold, but even if you can, you still need to be more familiar than that with a hymn before it can take you to a place of deep worship. And I think that might be one of the reasons that a lot of churches have gravitated toward choruses that, that repeat, because it gives you the chance to get familiar and to let the thing, to, to sing it a few times so that it moves down out of your head and into your heart. And, and eventually when you've sung a hymn enough times, you know it by heart and you can sing it from the depths of your soul and it can carry you into the presence of of God. And, and that's how we want to pray the Psalms. Yes, you can just open your Bible and read it right off the page, and you will get something out of it if you do that. But to pray a Psalm the right way, you really need to learn it deeply. And I don't just mean memorizing the words so that you can recite them, I mean letting it get deeper into your heart, becoming familiar with it, letting, letting it integrate the story it's telling with your own story so that the prayer can flow out of your soul as well as out of your mouth so that the psalm becomes a vehicle that carries you into the presence of God. And just like a hymn, you really have to do that over time. And with psalms, I mean that in two ways. I mean you have to pray a psalm quite a number of times before it really penetrates into your being. It has to sort of soak in through repeated exposure. But I also mean you have to take enough time to really pray it. You can read this psalm silently in about 30 or 40 seconds. Reading it out loud takes something like maybe two minutes, but how long does it take to pray this psalm? I can't give you a number, but I, I can tell you with a great deal of certainty that these psalms were actually written to be read and, and especially to be spoken out loud slowly and deliberately and meditatively. You may, you may have noticed, if you followed along in the text, that I put a bunch of asterisks into the text in the bulletin. I did that to reflect one of the most common features of the Hebrew Psalms, parallelisms. And I don't want to say anything about the, the technical or literary features of the parallelisms. I, my instinct is to do that, but I'm going to back away from that. But I want to say something practical about this, because I think it is really practical. Almost everything in the Psalms, and every Psalm happens in this back and forth, parallel rhythm and repetition, and that almost forces you to pray slowly and thoughtfully. And it also fits the reality of our bodies. We, I don't know if you've thought about this, we walk in a rhythm of left, right, left, right. Through all our lives, we breathe in out, in, out. If my calculations are right, you'll do that more than 10 million times if you live to your average life expectation. I hope some of those breaths will be breathing in the knowledge of God's goodness and breathing out thanks and praise to God because these, these parallel couplets in the Psalms help us do that in a rhythm that echoes the rhythms 
of our bodies. And of course, the Psalms also fit as they were designed to do by the God who inspired them and the human beings who wrote them down from their own experience. They echo and fit the spiritual realities of our life. The story they invite us into isn't just a work of poetic imagination, though there's plenty of poetic imagination in the Psalms, but they're the true story of the life of God's people, God's children in this broken world, but a world that God is redeeming. And here's the thing. We all know this, but it's good for us to hear it occasionally again and again. The life of God's children is not always an easy life. I mean, you get that message sometimes. You get the sort of health and wealth version of spirituality and of Christianity. This psalm gives us a bit of a a deeper take on that. It's obvious that this psalm is a prayer that arises out of deep distress and anguish. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment. There's a lot of anxiety there. What story is this psalm telling us? What kind of situation does it arise out of? We can't reconstruct the actual situation, but we can sort of feel out the contours of it. What is causing this anxiety and this distress? Well, the first thing the psalm actually names is an enemy. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. And before the end of this psalm, the number of enemies has multiplied. Verse 5, rescue me from my enemies, Lord. And the psalm ends on a pretty sharp note. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. We have to be a little careful about this, that we don't get delusions of grandeur here. Some people, some Christians, put too much on enemies and the opposition they feel. Some people define an enemy as anyone who gets in the way of their purposes. Hey, Lord, my enemy cut me off on the highway. Destroy him, Lord. My enemy got the promotion that I was supposed to get. Lord, Can you please do something about this? I mean, you don't have to kill her, but could you make her fail at the job so that I can get it? This is not the way we're supposed to think or the way we're supposed to pray. It's not how the Bible defines our enemies. An enemy is not someone who frustrates your plans. An enemy is someone who opposes or oppresses or attacks or threatens you because you belong to God in order to frustrate God's purposes for your life and God's purposes for the world. And even when someone does that, and it happens a lot, but even then, how does Jesus teach us to pray? Not against our enemies, but for them. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He modeled that. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But we do need to acknowledge that we have enemies. We have unseen spiritual enemies, one in particular, which this psalm acknowledges more clearly than most of the psalms do. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. That is oppression beyond human power. And if you walk with God, you will almost certainly experience that sometimes in your life. 
We also have human enemies who also work against God's purposes in our lives. And here's the thing. Sometimes these enemies are obvious and easy to recognize. Christians who face persecution or who face political oppression know who their enemies are. Amy works in a country that we're not even supposed to name the name of because it would undermine the work she's doing in that country because because there's a very dicey relationship with the powers that be in that country. Sometimes our, our enemies, like our capital E enemy, aim at destruction and they aim with guns. They do violence in this world. They shoot, they kill, they rape, they harm. Those enemies are God's enemies, and they're not hard to recognize, but sometimes our enemies actually look like our friends. We probably all have friends who believe things and who do things and maybe encourage and influence us to believe and do things that don't line up with the truth of God's Word. They're actually doing the same thing the devil does, undermining our trust in God and in God's Word and sowing confusion. I don't want to rant about this, but I do want to say it. I see and talk to more and more Christians who have less and less confidence in the truth of God's Word and in the authority of God's Word. So I at least want to ask the question and get you thinking about it, and especially the younger people here today. Is it possible that some of our friends are actually our enemies? Is it possible that some of the opinions they express are not just harmless, but quite harmful. Confusion and uncertainty are not good. One of the things this psalm prays for is clarity in the midst of confusion. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. We need to go through this reorientation and rededication to God's purposes, God's will, God's word. Okay, God's people always have enemies. But we haven't really come to the main problem that this psalm is grappling with yet. The psalm certainly acknowledges the presence and the reality and the power of our spiritual enemies. But the biggest problem this psalm grapples with is not unseen spiritual enemies, and it's not those human enemies that are out there. We know it. The biggest problem is the human person in here. The writer of this psalm may be troubled by those enemies out there, but the writer of this psalm is more like tortured by guilt and shame and anguish and fear of God's judgment in here. And that's actually where the psalm starts. Before it ever mentions any enemy outside, it cries out, do not bring your servant into judgment because no one living is righteous before you. And I'll be honest with you, this is probably the main reason I love this psalm and why I pray it almost every day. I feel like praying that line almost every day, if not every day. Do not bring your servant into judgment because no one living is righteous before you. In fact, the older I get, the more aware I am of my shortcomings, of the wrong things that I've done that still haunt me, and maybe even worse. Yes, I think this is worse. The possibility 
that I dream about, that I might become a person who actually doesn't do and doesn't say and doesn't think sinful things seems more and more out of reach the older I get. I just, am I ever going to get there? No. Well, by God's grace, I hope to. Maybe after Jesus raises me from the dead, I just see failure after failure after failure in my own life. And I don't think I'm alone here. I think a lot of Christians struggle with these same things. I think the Apostle Paul did, if you read Romans 7, the way I think it should be read. Wretched person that I am, the good that I want to do, I fail to do. And the wicked things that I don't want to do, that's what I see myself doing. Many of us wrestle with this, with guilt, with shame, with frustration, and we know how much we deserve God's judgment, and our sin makes us vulnerable to despair on top of that. We see how deeply sin has shaped us and how very hard it is to eradicate the sinful desires and evil inclinations that have taken such deep root in our hearts, and we think it's just never going to be better. And if that were not a big enough problem by itself, you put the two problems this psalm names together. We have an enemy that not only knows how to use our desires against us to make us stumble and fall, but this same enemy also knows how to crush us to the ground after we have fallen. Lord, 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 look at your servant now. Look what Mike did this morning. Look what Mike was thinking about last night. The devil is the accuser of God's people. And those fiery darts hit home. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. Is in despair. That's deep in our souls. A lot of us know what that's like. So let me say the most important thing about this psalm. The most important spiritual reality that this psalm looks at is not the existence and reality of our enemies. And it's not the human weakness and human sinfulness that we all share with this psalmist. The most important spiritual reality that this psalm fixes its gaze on is the merciful character of God. If you go back to the first stanza, you can see that God's character, the way God is, God's nature is the whole basis of the cry for mercy that this psalmist has written down as a prayer for others in your faithfulness and your righteousness come to my relief. This appeal to God's merciful and faithful and loving character is the thing that opens this psalm in that first stanza that I just read, and it closes it in the same way in the last stanza. For your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. This psalm understands. This psalm gets the life we live, the life of people who would like to be holy, but who are a long way from being holy and who are troubled by that. Our enemy 
It's always going to exploit that. It's always going to try to get us to look at our own sin and show us how bad it is. And our own minds and our own conscience is going to point us in the same direction. And you know what? Our sin really is really bad. Our sin really is worse than any of us could even really imagine. But this is the wrong direction for us to be looking in most of the time. If you think you can ever, ever overcome that, or, or, or bury it in the ground, or, or, or in some way by your own power deserve to stand in the presence of a holy God, you're completely mistaken. I know Jim preached on Psalm 51, a penitential psalm last week. I don't know what he said, but even if I'm saying exactly the same things, I hope I'm not saying totally different things, but even if I'm saying exactly the same things, they're worth saying again. If you look at your own worthiness, or really your own lack of worthiness, and if you dwell on that, you'll dwell in darkness. And it will crush you to the ground. And it will have this terrible spiritual effect of driving you farther and farther from God. It will keep you from running to the one place where you can find relief. There certainly are times for self-examination. And I'm actually going to get into that next week when we study Psalm 36. There are times when we do need to face and examine our sin so that we can turn away from it or overcome it. But we will never be able to remove the guilt by ourselves or overcome our sin by ourselves. The only thing that will do this for us is the mercy of God. The basis of our prayer, of any prayer, is not our character but God's character. We can pray because of God's faithfulness and God's steadfast love. That's the foundation of all prayer. That's really the foundation of our life. That's what allows us to turn to God even out of guilt and fear and despair. And that's what allows us to pour our hearts out to God. And I hope you noticed how that happens in this psalm. There are a lot of petitions in this psalm, 15, to be exact, but it's not all petition. And prayer shouldn't be all petition either. It should be more intimate than that. Look at the second and third stanzas towards the bottom of page seven. This is more like autobiography than petitionary prayer. This is a person pouring out a heart, an anguished heart to God, telling God all their troubles because God is their father, because God actually cares about them. You need to know that God is your father and God actually cares about you and you can pour out your troubles. You can confess your sins. You can bring your brokenness to God. And you know what? This self-disclosure, this pouring out even of your shame and your internal agony to God does not convey any Can you switch to this mic, Willem? Thanks. My batteries are still good. <laughs> it doesn't convey any new information to God. It doesn't help God understand you when you pour out your heart to God. It doesn't help God deal with your sinfulness or explain it to God any better than God already understands it. But it helps you deal with who you are 
and what you've done and how that fits into God's purposes and how that is banished by God's mercy. I don't know about you, but I need to know this. I need to be reminded of this. I naturally, this is one of the things I've learned even more deeply during my sabbatical. When one of my goals was to deepen my intimacy with God, I shrink from that. I don't reach out as, as eagerly to God's invitation to come and know me and be known by me. And it's because getting closer to God makes me face, brings me face to face with myself, with who I am. Learning to trust in God's love, the way this psalm teaches us to, and the way we will learn to better and better the more we pray this psalm. It's the only way to free us from this prison of fear and guilt and shame and anxiety and not wanting intimacy with God. And it's the only way we can truly and safely not only face who we are, but become the person God wants us to be and has the power to make us. Because we are sinners, but we're also servants. In fact, let's breathe some New Testament spirit into this psalm. We're not just servants of the living and loving God. We're children of a heavenly Father who loves us, who calls us, who acknowledges us, who seeks us. And whatever else this prayer is, Psalm 143, it is a turning away from our darkness and ourselves and turning towards the light of God's mercy. The heart of this psalm to me is sort of middle to end, verses 7 to 10, what I prefer to think of as stanzas 4 and 5, where there are some petitions and bases for those petitions, you know, Rescue me from my enemies because I hide myself in you. But each stanza, if you'll notice, has a kind of trajectory, a sense of direction, away from the darkness and fear it starts in, into the life and the purposes God calls us to. It's like the psalmist summoning courage through the act of prayer. Stanza four, for example, starts with with what? A failing spirit. Answer me quickly, Lord, my spirit is failing. It looks down into the pit. Do not hide your face from me or I will be like those who go down to the pit. But it ends up turning in trust, looking for the morning light. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go for to you I entrust my life. That's forward looking and outward looking. Same with stanza five. It begins in fear, hiding from my enemies, but it invites God to teach us, mere humans, how to do God's will. And ask God to send the Spirit to lead us forward into the things that God is calling us to. And maybe it's worth pointing out that this psalm doesn't just describe a linear march towards victory, out of darkness and into light. It sort of seems to cycle, to advance, but then retreat. Advance again, retreat again, and then advance. And in a way, I think this fits the larger scope of our life in God and our life in Christ. Because, yes, this is a great psalm to pray, 
when you wake up scared in the night or when you face some particular anxiety. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. But it's also a great psalm to pray as you wait for the capital M, morning, that will dawn when Jesus returns. And until that consummation and that final redemption, we will all be wrestling with our enemies and we'll all be wrestling with our own hearts. But this psalm gives us not just the words, but, 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 but the breath and the strength to keep coming back to our Father in heaven and to our merciful Savior, Jesus, as the Holy Spirit leads us and helps us in our weakness. So I think the best way to end this would be just to pray this psalm together. How about if I ask you to open your bulletins to page 7, and I'm going to read the first part of every couplet, and you all read the second part until we come to the end. Lord, hear my prayer. In your faithfulness and righteousness, do not bring your servant into judgment. The enemy pursues me. He makes me dwell in darkness. So my spirit grows faint within me. I remember the days. I meditate on all your works. I spread out my hands to you. Answer me quickly, Lord. Do not hide your face from me. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. Show me the way I should go. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. Teach me to do your will. May your good spirit lead me. For your name's sake, Lord. In your righteousness. In your unfailing love. Destroy all my foes. Bible says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Sin and death will be done away with and will bother us no more. Until then, let's keep the faith in a God who is merciful and compassionate forever. Amen.